This is week number 38 in our study of the book of Daniel, and we're over in chapter 9. We began that chapter last week and just got into the first couple of verses. And this this chapter is monumental and very important um, because <clears throat> what you believe about this chapter, especially toward the end of the chapter, will significantly influence everything you believe in your eschatology. It will set marching orders for the rest of what you understand, how you bring the other scriptures into that eschatology, because here in the book of Daniel is the first revelation of some of the details about what happens at the end of the age given by God. And so this, this chapter will be very specific as we get to the end of it. It'll give time frame references. It'll give um, things that we can latch hold of in history that will give us markers so that we can uh, actually count years and times and dates. And um, so this, this chapter will influence significantly Uh, what you think about not only this book, but if we went over to Matthew uh, chapter 24 or Mark chapter 13 or the whole book of Revelation, this this chapter sets down markers that will influence what you think about that time frame. So this this will be a very important chapter, not that any of the others that we've already been through aren't. Um, This one just, as we saw in chapter 7 and 8, give us details that were not given in the first vision that Daniel interpreted so in chapter 9 we're given even more details um, about the end of the age and the times that are there but we began this chapter um, Daniel says it's in the first year of King Darius and so that gives us a a time frame reference back to chapter 7 and 8 remember chapter 7 where we had the vision of the four beasts given in the first year of Belshazzar And then chapter 8, where we have the vision of the ram and the goat given in the third year of Belshazzar. And we know that Belshazzar was king over Babylon somewhere between 10 and 15 years. And so now we're in the first year of King Darius, which is after the Babylonians had fallen. So it's been at least a decade since Daniel had his second vision. So it's not that these things are sequential in Daniel's life. They're sequential for us to read, but 10 years or more probably more like 12 years, have gone by since Daniel had the vision of the ram and the goats. And as far as we know, he had no other visions and no other things that he wrote about, um, certainly not in this book, but even that he took notes on. Um, So it's been a while since Daniel had a vision. And so now he's um, one day reading the book of Jeremiah, apparently, and he comes across Jeremiah chapter 25 where Jeremiah prophesies that the desolation of Jerusalem will last for 70 years. And so Daniel can calculate quickly. He knows how old he is. He knows how long he's been in Babylon. And he realizes that the 70 years has now expired. And so he gets very excited about that and begins some actions. And these these next verses that follow after... um, the opening of the chapter, are the actions that Daniel takes. And we, we started this a little bit last week, but just to kind of um, get us going and to get back in the flow of things, we'll review uh, verse 3, but we'll begin reading there this morning, verse 3, and read all the way down through verse 14, um, where there's a, a break in, in what Daniel's praying about. So 
beginning in Daniel chapter 9, verse 3. There the scripture reads, So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned, committing iniquity, acted, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day. The men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all, all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which, you, which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings and our princes and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has, turned, has transgressed your law and turned aside not obeying your voice, so the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem." As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. So here's Daniel, and um, obviously um, pouring out his heart before the Lord. And we started with verse 3 last week where he says, with, um, with fasting and um, supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And so what do we say the fasting, the sackcloth, and the ashes all represent? Why is Daniel, um, you know, I think he's literally fasting. He's put on sackcloth as his clothing, and he's uh, burned a fire, and he's sitting in the ashes of that fire. So what is that all about, this, this physical degradation that he's, he's undergoing? Right, it, it, it shows his humility and his repentance before the Lord. I mean, we looked over in Isaiah and we looked over in Luke and saw where this is um, really what God calls for when someone is repenting before him and, and wants to humble himself before the Lord. And so that, that is the mindset of Daniel after he realizes that... Um, the 70 years has expired, you know, and that would have not been um, something that he just passed over lightly. That would have gotten him, got his attention, would have got him very excited um, that, you know, he's, he's thought for these 70 years about the desolation of his hometown, really. I mean, he's the one that was drug out of Jerusalem and marched to Babylon 
Um, and, and so the thought that they could restore Jerusalem has got to be overwhelming to him. But he also then puts together that the reason that the Jerusalem is desolate is because it reflects all the way back to the law of Moses and the things that God originally promised to the Israelites when he made a covenant with them. And so we'll talk about some of those things today. So Daniel recognizes in, that to go before the Lord, he's going to have to humble himself. Now, you have to remember, this is the most, probably the most righteous man on the planet at the time, right? I mean, Daniel is the one who has stayed faithful even when he was commanded by the king not to be faithful. And God has always worked it to his good. And at this present time, um, you know, Darius is the one who had Daniel thrown into the lion's den. But not by his own will, right? By the trickery of some men. And so you remember that Darius ran to the lion's den the next morning. So there's this relationship. There's this affection between Darius and this Daniel. And now it's been 10 years. And so that has done nothing but grow over those 10 years. And so there's this um, relationship that Daniel has with Darius. And he's remembering all these things and the setting. Daniel's the, probably the second highest man in the kingdom. Because you remember, he, the reason the men wanted to have him thrown into the lion's den is because the scripture, Daniel's very explicit, that Darius was getting ready to appoint Daniel to be over all his kingdom. And so they tricked Darius, had him thrown into the lion's den. Then when Daniel survived the lion's den, the next morning, Darius had those men and all their families thrown into the lion's den and destroyed. So clearly he would have then gone through with his plans to make Daniel over all his kingdom. So Daniel is like he was for Nebuchadnezzar. He's the second in command of the, the, the kingdom of King Darius, which would have been the Babylonian province. And so he's back where he was, you know, uh, 70 years ago, um, back when he had first been taken captive and had gone through all the training. And then because he could interpret the king's dreams, he was elevated and made second in command of the whole kingdom. So he's back where he was, but now he's, you know, 80 years old. And so this man who is prominent, righteous, in all his deeds, and the second in command of the Babylonian province puts on sackcloth and, a- and sits in ashes. So, I mean, this is a, a, no one could degradate themselves more than Daniel did because this is a faithful man. So then we, we start reading his prayer. And in verse 4, he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness. So what is Daniel doing here at the beginning of his prayer? How would you describe what he says? All right, this is praise for Almighty God, right? All right, why does Daniel start this prayer with praise for God? As a matter of fact, why should you always start your prayers with praise for God? Well, yeah, the model prayer does do that. But why? Why why would that be the place to start? Go ahead, Sherry. Or go ahead. Whichever one of you in your private conversation are talking. <laughs> why? Humility. All right, 
it does show your humility before God. What else does it do? All right, it acknowledges who you're talking to, right? And it worships God. All right. All right, so what, if you start your prayer with praise for God, what are you saying to yourself? Not only is God greater than you are, because that's obvious, right? But praise of God is more important than any request you could take before him. So even if you never get to your request, you still owe God praise. And so it's, it's setting priorities, it's recognizing who he is, it's doing the most important thing first in your prayer, right? Because that's where we should start. So your prayers always ought to start with praise for God, even if it's just a sentence, acknowledging who he is and who you aren't. So that you'll, you'll, it'll, it'll orient your mind with the right perspective as you begin your prayers. You, you've heard of the prayer acrostic acts, right? You know that, right? So what does the C stand for? All right, A is adoration. C is confession. What is T? Thanksgiving. And then what's the S? Supplication. So all of this stuff comes before any of your requests, right? Why? Why? Right, and and if you've sinned before him, then certainly you ought to get that right before you ask for anything, right? So why do you give thanks then before you ask for anything? Okay. Right, and, and you know, yeah, be grateful for what you, think about this. If you begin to count your thanks, which is what you're doing if, you, if you're in thanks before God, right, before you ask your request, what will you recognize? Well, not only that it all comes from him and he's sovereign over everything, but look how much he's already given you and blessed you with, right? Because you'll begin to thank him for things that the Spirit brings to your mind and you'll realize that God has already answered a myriad of prayers and done great wondrous things for you and so your supplications begin to diminish absolutely right but you know and that god doesn't bring immediate judgment even today on the whole planet shows his long suffering and his goodness and his blessings right because, I mean, he should, in righteousness and justice, just be done with it, right? Because the whole world rebels against him and curses him. And so he doesn't. Go ahead, Chris. Thankful, but really having the right attitude, the right attitude and right understanding that everything you have is a gift. Like really, it's, it's a humbling thing because you're recognizing that every one of those good things that you're being thankful for is a gift. You didn't earn them. Right. Right. Now, you know, I like to go to the extreme in this. Any good thing in your life, any good thing in your life comes from the Lord above, with whom there is no shifting shadow. Every single thing that's good in your life comes from a blessing of the Lord. And, you know, you could challenge me on that, right? Well, no, I get some things because I do what's right. No, 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 (laughs) no. You know, we, we earn nothing. Go ahead. 
put it here just to use it in the family, or did you just take what God's given us and put it into the Wait, realize that anything that Satan does is still under the auspices of God, right? It's still under the sovereign uh, allowance of God. So would Satan give me something good? I doubt it. I doubt it, especially as a saint. And so that's the protection of God in my life. So, I, I wouldn't think so. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, you know, we. Yeah, uh, our definition of good is something that's righteous, right? Not something that um, would give me pleasure um, outside of the will of God, which the whole world would define as good things. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. Because it. That's right, and acknowledging where it comes from, right? That everything good that exists comes from God. We'll talk about that again another day, right? So Daniel in this verse 4 names some of the characteristics of God. What are they? He's great and awesome, right? You know, and, and really awesome should be reserved for God only because there's nobody else who's awesome in comparison to him. All right, what else? He keeps his covenants, right? He's faithful and keeps his covenants to whom? Right. <laughs> to those who love him and keep his commandments. All right, what does that hearken back to? You're a Jew, right? You have a Jewish mindset. You got drug out of Jerusalem where the temple was. You're in a foreign land, and you say that God keeps his covenants and his loving kindness to those who love and obey him. What does that harken back to? All the way back to the Mosaic Law, right? Because that's what God said in the Mosaic Law, right? Love and and obey me, and you'll have blessings. Disobey me, and you'll have cursings. And we'll look at some of those in in just a couple minutes, because Daniel refers to them. So the, the Mosaic Law was conditional, right, on obedience, and faithfulness. So um, we'll go back to that in just a minute. But I think even here, that's what Daniel kind of has in his mind. But he's, he's thanking God that even though Jerusalem is desolate, right, that the Jews have been drug off to all kinds of lands, that God still keeps his covenant. So we have to think about that a little bit, right? Because part of his covenant not the Mosaic Covenant, but the Abrahamic Covenant, had to do with them being in Jerusalem. Okay, so I think here he's thinking about the Mosaic Covenant. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a minute. All right, and then Daniel in verse 5 says, We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even a turning aside from your commandments and your ordinances. Okay, What does Daniel do in this verse that kind of is outrageous? Yeah. He doesn't say they, right? He says we, meaning he's putting himself in with the sinners. Now, why does he do that? 
right? He recognizes his personal sin, even though we never see it in the book of Daniel, right? But clearly this man was not perfect. So he recognizes his, his personal sins. What else does he do by saying that? What else is he doing by saying that? Yeah, he's identifying himself as an Israelite so that he can go before the awesome God and make supplication for the Israelites because he's one of them. So he's identifying with them, but he also identifies with their sins, recognizing that he's got some sin too. And, and they as a nation is the way God first identified them, right? So the nation is sinful. So Daniel is a, a identifying with his people and not trying to say they were bad and I'm good. And, you know, he's not doing that. He is truly humbling himself before God and taking on the sins of his people, not in a way that Christ would take them on, but he's identifying with them. And he's saying, I'm one of them, and, and we have sinned against you. It's a little outrageous that he does that because th- this is a good man. This is a man whom God has used greatly and has blessed and um, you know, has worked in his life in, in miraculous ways. And yet Daniel identifies and humbles himself That's right. Right, and he does. He, he, I mean, he got drug off because of these sins, and and you know these sins didn't just go on for a generation. These sins went on for a very long time, and so uh, and we'll we'll talk about some of that. Um, so Daniel is identifying. Notice what he says here. Um, well, really, it comes. The, the commandments and ordinances, again, harkens back to what? I mean, you could say the Ten Commandments, right? But that doesn't include any ordinances, right? So when you talk about ordinances, what are we talking about in, in a Jew's life? I mean, we want ordinances are in our life, right? We would have two of those. Right, that would be baptism and the Lord's Supper. All right, but what are they talk? What is he talking about here? Yeah, all the sacrifices, the festivals, all the things that that God commanded and ordered for the Jews to worship Him. That really point to Christ ultimately, but nevertheless, they were to obey these to the law, you know, to the very letter of the law. And there are very specific things that they had to do. We've talked about that, even the morning and evening sacrifices, right? As we get later in the, when they're stopped by Antiochus, I mean, that was a requirement out of the Mosaic law for the people to keep the altar purified. So all these things that they rejected and they did not do, certainly did not follow them um, as God would require. This would include circumcision. That you have to circumcise your children. That would be an ordinance of the Jewish faith, um, commanded by the Mosaic Law. So um, there, there's a whole list of things. So Daniel's identifying with his people. He says that we clearly have sinned, and I'm included in that. And then in verse 6, he says, Moreover, we have not listened to your servant, the prophets, 
who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. So who does he exclude there? Our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Everybody's included, right? Every single Israelite is included in that list. Okay, and he says, most often, what did the Jewish people do when a prophet came and spoke to them? What would they typically do? They would persecute him, right? Because he was saying things they didn't want to hear. Now, Jeremiah, you remember we've talked about this. Jeremiah and Daniel overlap in their lives and in their writings. Jeremiah wrote to about the middle of the 70 years of captivity. Okay, and he he preached in the temple in Jerusalem before the captivity ever happened. And his message was direct and repeated often. Okay, but let me give you an example of the reaction of the people of Jerusalem to Jeremiah's preaching. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 36. Jeremiah, just a couple books before, right? Daniel. Jeremiah 36. All right, and this is a story of Jeremiah getting a word from the Lord and writing it down on a scroll. Actually, he didn't write it down, but he dictated it to Baruch, who who wrote it down. So 36, just read... Let's read the first few verses. It says, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning all the nations from the first day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah even to this day. Sounds like a long book, doesn't it? Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. So what is God saying right there to Jeremiah? Just an aside. What's he telling Jeremiah that may happen? That the, yeah, if they repent, now this is, (laughs) we'll see what the timing is. I mean, this is Jeremiah after preaching for years. And God still says in this passage, at this time, if they repent, then I'll forgive their iniquity and their sin. You'll see how outrageous that is in just a minute. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. Jeremiah commanded Baruch saying, I am restricted I cannot go into the house of the Lord. Why not? They wouldn't let him because they didn't like what he had to say previously. So you go and read from the scroll which you have written at my dictation the words of the Lord to the people in the Lord's house on a fast day. And also you shall read them to all the people of Judah who come from their cities. Perhaps their supplication will come before the Lord and everyone will turn from his evil way for great is the anger and the wrath that the Lord has pronounced against the people. So what's Jeremiah hopeful for? 
Yeah, even though these people have cast him out of the temple, a prophet of God cast out of the temple, restrict him what he can do and where he can go, he still hopes that the people will repent and that God will forgive their iniquity. Now, this story goes on. Look down in, um, well, in verse 22. We'll wait until we get there. What Baruch does, Baruch goes into the temple and he reads this scroll. And some of the leaders of the people get in a room by themselves and begin to discuss this. And they ask Baruch to come and read it again to them. He does. These people are fearful because they know, you know, everything that God has told you to write, right. So that includes the judgments. So they know the judgment that is getting ready to come upon them. And they're fearful because of it. So they go to the king and they say, you really need to hear this scroll. Now, before they go to the king, they hide it so that the king can't find it. And so ultimately the king says, okay, go get the scroll and bring it here and read it to me. And then verse 22 happens. Okay. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning in the brazier before him. When Jehuda had read three or four columns, the king, he's reading the scroll now that has the same thing that Baruch had read. When the king cut it with a scribe's knife and threw it into the fire that was in the brazier until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the brazier. Yet the king and his servants who heard all these words were not afraid, nor did they rend their garments, even though yeah, Mr. E and Mr. D and Mr. G pleaded with the king not to burn the scroll. He would not listen to them. And the king commanded uh, Mr. J and the king's son, Mr. S, the son of Israel and all these people to seize Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord hid them. So not only does he reject what's written in the scroll and burns it, he also wants to, them to go and arrest the guy who read it and the guy who dictated it to him. But God hides them. And then the Lord brings another word to Jeremiah. And so down in verse 30, God, the story continues. Therefore, thus says the Lord, this is God speaking to um, Jeremiah. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat and the day and the frost of the night. I will also punish him and his descendants and his servants for their iniquity and I will bring on them and and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all the men of Judah all the calamity that I have declared to them, but they did not listen. Now, God, in, in this passage, God tells Jeremiah, write it again. And they do. But they add to it those words we just read, that God's done with it. Now, this happened, look in verse 1, when? In the fourth year of Jeho- Jehoiakim, right? Now look at Daniel 1.1. 1, 1. Daniel 1.1 1, 1 gives us the time frame and it says when they got 
taken to um, Babylon. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar came to Babylon, came, king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay. So I can hear the guys who think this book is a forgery and written in the second century BCC say, See, he doesn't even know his history. Because how could Jeremiah have written everything he did in the fourth year of Jehoiakim and yet Nebuchadnezzar comes in the third year? So how, how could that? Yeah, I mean, but it's the same guy, right? Same guy. He only reigned one time, Jehoiakim. And he became a puppet after Nebuchadnezzar came in. Actually, his son did. So how can... Jeremiah say in the fourth year of Jehoiakim that calamity is going to come and then Daniel write in the third year of Jehoiakim calamity did come. Well we've talked about this a couple of times right? That from a Babylonian way of dating things right zero based you have a year of ascension and then the first year. So the third year is really the fourth year. In a Judean way of thinking, there is no year of ascension. You start at the first year. That's his first year. Sort of like we say the president's first year, right? So Jeremiah, a Jew, writing in Judah, writes in the Judean way of thinking about things. Daniel, a true Babylonian, trained in the Babylonian way of thinking, and dating and all of that, 70 years later, having lived in the Babylonian kingdom for all those years, writes like a Babylonian and says in the third year, which is really the fourth year. So there's no disagreement between these verses. But what does that tell you about this time when Jeremiah sent the scroll before Jehoiakim and the siege by Babylon? It's like that, right? I mean, they're right behind one another. So here's God sending a word to the king and the whole kingdom just before, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's probably already marching towards them. And God's saying, if you'll repent, I'll forgive you. That's outrageous. He's already got the army marching towards them. Because we know clearly that Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem at the will of God to judge them. And so even while the army's marching on the way, God's still saying, if they'll repent, I'll forgive them. How gracious is he? Daniel recognizes that. This is why Daniel says what he says. He's read the whole scroll of Jeremiah, and he knows what it says. And he recognizes that even at the very end, God was still willing to forgive them. He would have stopped Nebuchadnezzar. But God, in his, in his sovereignty and his ordination, knew that they weren't going to turn. And so he had Nebuchadnezzar come and judge them. It's outrageous. So this is an example. Jehoiakim had all opportunity, did he not? To repent. Did he know that Nebuchadnezzar was on the march coming to Jerusalem? Probably not. And he didn't believe what Jeremiah said. Yeah. So Jeremiah rewrote the scroll, and then the judgment came. 
So, I mean, this is an example of what Daniel says over in chapter 9 and verse 6. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. No kidding. Right? I mean, we've got it in, in all color here. At the very end, they didn't listen to him. Now, Je- this is not the first time that Jeremiah had said this. Jeremiah had been preaching in the temple in Jerusalem for years. Matter of fact, after they're taken into captivity, Jeremiah is allowed to go before the Jews in captivity and continue to preach and continue to write. And that's what the book that Daniel is reading. So, yeah, we haven't listened. And Daniel knows that full well. Daniel probably was a little boy and heard Jeremiah preach in the temple just, just before Nebuchadnezzar came in. He probably remembers that. Because you remember, he, when he gets to Babylon, it's not like he hasn't been trained in the Jewish way of thinking and doing, right? Because he says, no, I'm not going to eat that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do these things. And so he stays faithful. So he, he's not like he's a, a, a dumb little 10-year-old or something, right? He is young, but he knows the way of the Lord. And so he probably heard Jeremiah preaching these very words, or at least at some point in his life. I mean, Jeremiah finally got banned from the temple because they didn't like what he said. So this is Daniel remembering all of this. This is not like this is secondhand. This is firsthand for Daniel. Okay, so you go on and to verse 7. Well, yeah, verse 7. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open chain. As it is this day, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. I want you to notice who Daniel includes in this list of people. Okay? He says, to the men of Judah. Who's that? The men of Judah. What would, who would that be? Who's in Judah? What tribes? Well, Judah, clearly, right? Some of Benjamin, and then... Got it? Got to have Levites, right? Got to have Levites because we have temple worship. So, and then probably some people, few, but some people from all the other tribes also. All right, so that's who's in Judah. That's what he means when he says Judah. But then he goes on and he says, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's pretty clear, right? That's where the king would be and all the royalty and all the prominent people that first got drug away to Babylon. And then he says, and all Israel. Who's that? That's the northern kingdom. Now, where is the northern kingdom at the time when Jerusalem gets seized? Yeah, 120 years previously, the Assyrians came in, right, and and drug them off and made them captive and made their land desolate. So Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom, Daniel includes them all. Why? Why? Their sin's the same. They all were Israelites. They all were given the Mosaic Law. So Daniel includes all of them. He doesn't just think about his own little community of Jerusalem. He's including all Israel here. 
Okay, so he's, I mean, they all did the same thing. They all disobeyed God. They disregarded the ordinances. They didn't follow the Mosaic law. I mean, the, the whole bit. So there's no difference in the end between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. We think, well, the northern guys were really bad. They only had bad kings. Southern kingdom at least had some good kings, and that's true. Typically, they have a good one, then a bad one, then a good one, then a bad one, then a good one, then a bad one. This went on for hundreds of years. and But they were... In the end, I mean, they sacrificed children just like the northern kingdom did. They did all the same iniquities that the northern kingdom did. So they're not any better, even though we think of them differently. They're not any better. So Daniel is praying for all of them. And what does he say? What belongs to them? Shame. Open shame before the whole world, right? They've been made desolate. And, and God knew it would be shameful to them, and they deserve it. That's what Daniel's saying. That we have shame, and, and we own it. I own it. We deserve it. But God, what's he say about him? Righteousness belongs to God. All right, now, righteousness is a hard word, right, for us to really think about, not a word I use every day in my common language. So when he says righteousness belongs to you, what is he saying? Give me some synonyms. All right, goodness, sinlessness, those would be true. Purity, justice, justice. Right. Right. But to God. That's right. Praiseworthy, but also just. What we have, we deserve. And God has been just to give it to us. He hasn't done anything he shouldn't have done. No blame to God. All this has come down on me because God doesn't love me. You know, all those kind of crazy things. It's not what he's saying. He says, we have this because we deserve it. God has been just. God has done exactly what he said he would do. So Daniel recognizes this and he acknowledges it before God in his prayer. All right, so keep going. I mean, Daniel does this over and over and over again. So, verse 8, he just says the same thing again, right? He says, Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. So we got what we deserved, is basically what he's saying. And, and you know, this did not go on for just one generation. This went on for a long time, hundreds of years. Longer than that, even. And we'll talk about that maybe if I get that far. All right, now now look at the the, the the way Daniel thinks about himself. Verse 9. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Daniel rebel against God? We see none of that, right? None. Now, to rebel means what? Right. Are, are you ignorant in your rebellion? No. no. There's something specific that you know about that you refuse, right? So rebelling is to know not to do wrong and yet do it anyway. That's rebelling. Okay? There's a rule, and you know the rule, and yet you refuse the rule, and you do what you want to do anyway. That's rebellion. Daniel never rebelled that we know of, but Daniel identified with the people who did rebel. 
So this is the depth to which Daniel feels and prays here to God. I mean, this guy is good. He's righteous. And yet he calls himself a rebel. We have rebelled. So he, I mean, he's holding nothing back in his personal association with the sin of the Jewish people. This is the depth to which he believes it. Now, he says, in New American Standard, compassion and forgiveness are what God has. In ESV, I think it says mercy and forgiveness, right? Okay, so why does he say that? Why, why does Daniel, you know, he previously said that God is righteous and he's awesome. And he's worthy of praise, basically. And now he's saying to God belong mercy and compassion. Why does he say that? And not only that, he said in 70 years, we can go back, right? 70 years is up. So Daniel is appealing. He ultimately will appeal to God based on the character of God, that he's loving, he's full of kindness toward them, he's merciful toward them, he keeps his covenants, he keeps his word that he said to us. He's been just in what he did. So Daniel, this whole prayer is saturated with the attributes of God to which he appeals to. So all through here, he's identifying with the people, but he's also acknowledging who God is. And that's the basis of his prayer. That's what he's going to ask God based upon. And you'll see that when we next week get down there. there. Okay, verse 11 my 2.11? No, verse 10. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings. Give me a different word than teachings there. Laws would be better. Teachings is, think, connotates something different to us. Laws which he has set before us through his servants, the prophets. So he's saying basically just what we read back in Jeremiah, that we've ignored whatever your prophet said. We have not heeded their words. Occasionally they did in their history, but most of the time, not so much. And then in verse 11, Indeed all Israel, that's all of them, right? You know, we're including everybody that are Jew, has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him, not Moses, but against the Lord. Right? All right, so now we know he's talking about the Mosaic law, right? All right, so help me here in dating things. The Jews came out of Egypt in what year? 1445 B.C., right? That's when the Mosaic Law was given, right, at the beginning? And then 40 years in the wilderness, so the 1405 or so. And then we have Daniel written, uh, Daniel taken to Babylon in 605, how many years? 800 years, and if you include the 40, 840. Then they've been in captivity how long? 70 years. So now we're 900 plus years later. You know, just think about 900 years ago. So in the 1100s, Daniel associates all the way back to something that old. 
and recognizes that God said something in 1100 that is coming true, has come true to us today. So you go, well, what did he say, right? Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy 27. This is, uh, you know how this goes, right? Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Leviticus only covers just a very short time span, maybe a month. At the beginning of the 40 years of wandering, Numbers details the wanderings, but mostly the first couple of years and the last couple of years, the middle years, just we don't know anything about. And then you have Deuteronomy at the end, which only covers about a month again. And you have, this is the last words of Moses to the people. Repeats everything that was said in Leviticus and then says a few things in farewell speeches to them. This is where we get the Song of Moses, the first mention of the prophet who is to come. That's why when they were looking at John the Baptist, they said, are you the prophet? Look at Jesus, they said, are you the prophet? It's the prophet from the Song of Moses that they're asking about. So this is the, where we're at time frame wise. So this is after the 40 years of wandering, just before Joshua takes them across the Jordan. And this is what Moses says in verse 14, 27, 14. We'll just read through this quickly. The Levites then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen and sets it up in secret and all the people shall answer and say amen cursed is the one who dishonors his father and his mother all the people shall say amen cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary and it goes on and on and on you see cursed 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 all the way to the end of the chapter where verse 26 ends with cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them and all the people say amen Okay, so this is, this is what God says. And, and then you go in verse 28 and you'll see the blessings. So this is all the blessings for those who do obey his law. And then he goes back to the curses and the results that the curses will bring on your life beginning in 28, 15 and down below. Now the picture here is, Joshua, when you take the people into across the Jordan, you'll come to two mountains. You've heard this story, right? Gerizim and Ebal. Put the people with the blessings, a few representatives, up on Gerizim. Put the other people on Ebal for the curses. Put all the people in the valley in between the two hills and let them pronounce blessings and cursings dependent upon their obedience. So the people will have a clear picture of what's going to happen. They did. That actually happens. And, and so there's no ignorance here at all. And this, you know, this would, of course, are Jewish. This would have gone down through the years for the 900 years that we just looked at. So there's this, Daniel knows this. And he says those curses that were pronounced way back in the Mosaic Law when the people went into the land across the Jordan is, has come true to us today because we have disobeyed the word of the Lord. That's what Daniel is saying in his prayer. That's what he associates with. That, and, and so here's God making a covenant, saying this is what happened if you obey. This is what will happen if you disobey. God has been just. Everything he has done is according to what he said would happen. That's what Daniel's saying. 
There's no injustice here whatsoever. The pe people understood, said, yep, that we agree to, and yet we wind up 900 years later with the curses on the land. That's what Daniel is identifying with in this prayer. He says, we've gotten what we deserve. God warned us, and yet we continued in our sin, in our, di in our disobedience. Okay, so we go back to Daniel chapter 9 and we'll finish up for today. This is, uh, you understand the heart of Daniel here? I mean, all these things are in his mind. It's not like he's just casually going before the Lord. He, he understands all that's going on. And so, and he says that in verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses. It's, not, it's very clear what he's thinking about. And so, we're almost to the end where Daniel begins to make supplication to the Lord. So that's what we'll look at next week of how he appeals to God and what he asks God to do and why. Because it's not like we really need some relief here. So we, we need to send us back. That's not at all his appeal to God. That's not why he says what he says. That's not even why he's praying here because he wants some relief and his people need relief. That's not in his mind at all. So we'll see that next week. Go ahead. Right. Well, there are still consequences before God for disobedience, right? I mean, the Lord disciplines those who are his. That's how you know you're a child of God, right? Because he disciplines you. It may not be like this. It may not make your house desolate and ashy and all that. But he does discipline those whom he loves. I mean, there's no question about that. So there... Will he send someone to destroy a nation that's evil? He could. Has he in the past? Certainly. Has it happened recently? Probably. This was... Well, are, are we not his people? <laughs> sure. Right. And, and even in, in periods of obedience, if how slight they were, I mean, the Jews could suffer still. They still have wars and, and you know, hard times. I mean, think about um, the famine of Joseph, for example. God didn't spare them from the consequences of the famine. I mean, they suffered greatly. Yeah. I think so. I don't, I mean, yeah, the people of God can still suffer physically. Hopefully, you don't suffer what Daniel's suffering here because of rebellion and sin. I mean, to a certain degree. Go ahead. Right. Right, right. I mean, he does. Go ahead. Right.
And and then it's once he realized that wasn't going to happen, David gets up, washes himself, makes himself, and worships God. Because he understood that God had been just in taking the child who was conceived in sin. Right. Sure. Right. 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 Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, God doesn't spare us from those, but the suffering that we're called to is for the name of Christ. I mean, think about the disciples. They get scourged, sent out into the streets, and they rejoice because they were able to suffer. They were identified with Christ, and that's why they were suffering. So, but you know. Well, you still hear that, right? Uh, you still hear that. Right. Well, if. Right. Well, in the, New, in the New Testament, if you obey God, He will bless you. That doesn't he, mean He'll spare you from everything this world wants to do. Go ahead, John David. Absolutely. Right. 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 And and even think about today, guys in Kenya versus guys here, and they're standing up for the Lord, and the difference of someone speaking against you and someone cutting your head off. You know, it's different levels of suffering, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know. Paul had the right perspective, right? To leave this world is to be present with the Lord. That would be far better. <laughs> so, but it's how you get there, right? That's what you worry about. <laughs> okay, anything else? Thanks for your time.